is. It's very interesting. If you look at the way Google is structured and the way that they kind of utilize their time as a company, they utilize their attention, each stage of growth for Google was marked by a different rhythm. So, uh, so in 1996 and 1997, you have the founders, and they, uh, their goal is to perfect an algorithm. They focus all of their time and attention and energy on building a really good algorithm. And what that does is it scans the entire internet, this algorithm, and it finds, it ranks the pages that have the most other pages kind of linking back to that page. That's what Google's trying to accomplish. That's what they're trying to do. And so they, they spend all of their energy and their time making the best algorithm that they possibly can. So uh, in 1998 and 99, this thing happens where the algorithm actually works. Like they have a really good product that they've developed. And so uh, in this phase, they're kind of working on identity and brand development. This is where their logo came around. This is where their name kind of came about. This is where you get the different colors that you see in Google. This is kind of their identity, who they are. That was 98 and 99. Then in 2000 and 2001, they realized that they had a really incredible product and that they could actually leverage the growth of that product to uh, kind of invite others to use their space for advertising. So they came up with this thing called Google AdWords, where they spent all of their energy and their time focusing on, hey, like uh, if you pick a certain word and you pay enough money, we'll make sure that whenever somebody searches that word, that your site is what pops up first in their list, right? So that's, that's they kind of leveraged their growth at that point. And then uh, their growth was going so rapidly in that 2002 to 2004, they actually had to hire a CEO from some other company because the people who were working at Google had no idea how to build the systems and structures required to actually manage the rapid growth that they're going. So that was their focus, that was their rhythm, that was what their time was oriented towards. And then, uh, and then from you know, 2004 to 2012, it was kind of just keep going keep coming up with ideas, keep expanding. Yet actually in this stage, you get a lot of acquisition. So, so their focus, now that they have this really amazing product, they have this identity, they have this brand, what they're doing now is they're, they're finding ways to expand their influence into other companies. So they're acquiring companies. This is where they get YouTube. This is where they get uh, just the, the number of different uh, products and uh, development and research that they were doing. It all comes in this phase. And then kind of from 2012 to the present, this is what they're doing now. They're focused entirely on competition, right? So they know that there are like three or four other big companies out there, and they're just putting all of their energy into outdoing those companies and getting the corner of the market that they're trying to do. So like each stage is uh, accompanied by a different focus, a different orientation of their time, different use of their energies, different arrangement of the personnel that they have. And so all of this is going on. Each stage required a new set of patterns for them. And after the rhythms get established, after they actually kind of get their feet under them in a new rhythm, that enables them to kind of step into their next season as a company. And we can think of our lives like this as well. Um, If you've experienced significant growth in your life, what you know is that all of that growth does not come at one time. Like there's not just like one time that uh, all of a sudden things were different, but you know that it was kind of gradual. But if you're honest and you look at the span of your life, what you also know is that it kind of just wasn't like, like slow and steady the whole way, but that there were actually like identifiable seasons where your growth kind of skyrocketed. 
for a little bit, and then you leveled off, and then you kind of stepped into a new rhythm, and your growth skyrocketed for a little bit, and that's kind of the pattern that we go through. So if, if, you've, uh, if you've experienced this, you know that it comes in waves. And so in my journey of following Jesus, uh, you know, in some stages, my growth was more pronounced than others. And, and those stages of significant growth for me, you can always connect them to a change in my rhythms. So uh, there was a point in my spiritual life and my walk with Jesus that I realized I was kind of hitting a, a, a wall. I kind of hit this space where uh, my growth was stunted. Uh, So I was kind of running into the same sin issues, kind of all revolving around insecurity and fear and a constant concern of what other people thought of me. And then uh, on top of that, uh, running into just like not seeing deep work being done in my life, right? So I knew scripture goodness, I'd spent a lot of time with scripture. I knew it really well, like it was in my head, right? I'd spent some time in prayer, but like I was absent to the moment by moment grace of Jesus in my life and how that moved me uh, towards people, how that impacted uh, kind of every way of seeing and perceiving things, right? So, So I was at this wall and here's what is true of my life up to that wall. Uh, I was highly regarded in the eyes of my authority figures. I had a deep awareness of scripture. Uh, I was somewhat consistent, but still kind of dry in my individual prayer life. And uh, I was faithfully serving in church, right? Like all of those things were true for me, and yet I was hitting this wall. Because here's what was also true. My faith was a very independent reality. Do you notice everything that I told you were things that I was doing? This is what I was engaging. These are the steps that I was taking. Uh, Here's what was also true. I really only had one very close friendship. That was it. Uh, And then beyond that, I had a mostly shallow engagement with the majority of my church community. So uh, I had fun with my church community. I knew that we shared kind of, we were like-minded in many ways but I rarely, like we rarely actually became vulnerable with each other, right? And all of this contributes to the space. Like the Lord actually made it clear to me at a certain stage in my life that if his work, the deeper work that he wants to do inside of me is actually going to be done, that the rhythm of my relationships had to change. Like I could not continue to remain independent if the Lord was going to do what he wanted to do in my life. So uh, read these words in John 17, 20 through 21. This is what it says. Jesus, right now, he is praying a prayer for his disciples and the people that who would believe what his disciples say after him. Uh, This is coming after he is meeting in this upper room. This is kind of his last chance to talk to his disciples. This is right after he said to them, if you want to really bear fruit, you know what you're going to do? You're going to abide in me. Right, right after that, then he prays this. This is what he is asking God for, for these people. He says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe. It's like he, he prays this right after this note about abiding in him, about seeing fruit come about. He, it's as if to say, when he prays this prayer, it's as if to say, your abiding in me, 
your growth, what I will produce from your life, plays out to the degree that you find oneness with your brothers and sisters. Right? To the degree that the church can find oneness with each other, then the abiding will play out. Then the fruit will start to be seen. So here's the implication. The implication is that Jesus' life only thrives through Jesus-centered relationships. Like that's the only way that the the life-changing work of Jesus really starts to come about in significant ways is through Jesus-centered relationships. So my problem, for what it's worth, was not that I needed more Bible. It was not that I needed more, needed to pray more. It's not that I, uh, it's not that I kind of needed to do a bunch of things. Like the thing that was going to kind of take me into the next season was not just do, 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 but it was be with God's people. Right? Like enjoy them putting into my life. I needed more deeply Jesus-centered relationships in my life. And so, uh, so today, we're going to talk about one of the most formative aspects of the Christian life, that the rhythm that we're going to call us to is the rhythm of relationships. So this presents a particular challenge for us, uh, because there aren't actually like many passages in the Bible that say, you know what, you should have s- some good relationships, I was like surprised when I, I knew, I know that relationships are important, but when you try to like look at the span of scripture and understand what scripture wants for relationships, it's not like there's like a ton of information about what it means to have a really good friendship, right? Like you get some passages that talk about unity in the midst of conflict, and that's a good thing. You get some passages that command us to love each other and uh, kind of give us the characteristics of love. Uh, and in fact, some people may tell you that the entire New Testament and all the commands of the New Testament could be summed up with the word love. And still yet, like you, you get passages on growth. Uh, and, and we kind of know that uh, community and having a good community is vital to our growth. But there are really only a few passages that actually make the case for that. So like trying to understand what's going on, like if it's so crucial that I have good relationships in order to grow as a Christian, why can't I just like blatantly observe that on the pages of scripture? So uh, like what I really want is the Bible to say something like, be authentic and transparent with a few close friends, let them encourage you and challenge you and call you deeper into God's mission. Like it would be great if the Bible said just that somewhere. I would love that. Uh, Or uh, how about this? Like don't isolate because if you isolate, you can't really grow in the way God intended. Like I would love if the Bible said like those words exactly, that would be really helpful for me. So if relationship is so vital to my growth, why isn't it written about more? And here's the answer. A teacher does not have to give instruction about things that their pupils already know. Like things that are already assumed by their audience. Like the fact that Christians would be in regular, engaged relationship with other Christians is not commanded because the writers of the New Testament, for the most part, assume it. It is assumed in what they are saying that that Christians are just going to spend time together. Right, it's, it's such a part of the culture of the day that 
the writers of the New Testament hardly had to emphasize it. Like this is like the word hospitality. Every time we come across the word hospitality in the Bible, I have to kind of push pause and explain because we think hospitality is like, oh, we're going to have people over to our house and we're going to have a nice party and we want to make things look nice and make people comfortable. And hospitality is like so much more than that. But the thing is the writers of the New Testament could just say the word hospitality and everybody knew what they were talking about. Right? The same is true when we talk about relationships. And here's the difference. This is the culture of the day. Like Today, we are an individualistic society, but the New Testament world was a collectivistic society, which means that the people, like they just naturally spent more time together. Right? If you had a shared faith, it was just assumed that you would spend time with the people of that faith. It's a basic assumption. Because identity and purpose did not come from self, it came from the group. And that was just kind of like a, a, a cultural reality. So there are other realities that contributed to this, like you lived much closer to your neighbor in that world. Uh, the concept of privacy didn't really exist like it exists today. Uh, you had far less to distract yourself with, right? So instead of spending your time on like a phone, you spent time with people, um, Everybody shared the same basic schedule together, like their lives pretty much coincided. Um, Everybody lived similar kinds of lives in that world. And when these people became Christians, you don't have to tell them, make sure you regularly spend time with other Christians because you know that they're already going to. But we, like this is kind of our reality, we uh, seek to own heavily insulated homes, right, with at least like 15 feet of space between our home and the next home. Uh, We live behind locked and deadbolted doors. Uh, We work on a schedule that works best for us and our family. We have a priority place on our own personal interests. And we have kind of um, internalized messages that have really shaped us as a culture like this. Uh, You can be whatever you want to be. Right? You can be whatever you want to be. That, just for what it's worth, that message is a phenomenon culturally because it used to be, well, you need to be whatever the group needs you to be. That was kind of the message that was internalized. So here's the concern for us. Because uh, collectivistic or individualistic, like each side kind of has its own problems. The point is, uh, the writers of the New Testament didn't have to say, be in relationship with each other because people were already going to do that. But the concern for us is this. Our individualism is only a short step away from isolation. The way that we have structured and lived our lives is only a very small step away from us getting into isolation. And isolation is the dangerous place for us to live out our faith. Right, so if we don't adjust our personal priorities to make space for the development of a faith community then really at the end of the day, like this is what we are. We are consumers who approach Christianity and faith like a product. And so we find uh, a product that fits our preferences and we put it in the basket and we make it a part of our schedule in a way that's convenient for us because we live in an individualistic society. That's how we're shaped and formed. But the problem is, is if we can't figure out how to prioritize deeply relational community, then we can't actually live the life that Jesus calls us to because the life that Jesus calls us to is the one that he emulated to us, that he would give himself for us, sacrifice him very, his very self in order that we might find life with the Father.
right? So Jesus comes and says, believe in me, trust in me, follow me, and you will find life. And then he says, emulate the way that I have loved you to one another. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another, right? So, so the way that we love actually says something significant about what we believe about Jesus. So, uh, so today, instead of looking at a single scriptural passage to kind of make our case, we're, because there's no Bible verse that commands uh, be in relationship with each other and make sure that it looks like this and this and this. We have uh, a series of different scriptural examples that we're going to look at. Because if this was kind of written into the culture, then I want to look at how people who lived in the culture operated with each other and see what we can glean from that. So we're going to look at three scriptural examples, uh, and we're going to try to draw out three key characteristics of deeply formative relationships. So the first example is Jesus and the disciples. And uh, the key characteristic is this, that formative relationships require mutual enjoyment. Like formative relationships inqu- require mutual enjoyment. So, uh, so we're not going to see any single passage that clarifies this for us, but we're going to look at Jesus' general relationship with his disciples because the idea that we get is that Jesus was very much an instructor, and he was an instructor. But if we think about him only in those terms, we miss kind of the nuances of his relationship that are basically written into the culture of the day. Right? So like Jesus had fun with his disciples. It's hard for us to see that because it's hard for fun in the first century to translate to fun in the 21st century. But uh, he had so much fun that the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, right? So, uh, so Matthew 9.10 says this. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There was something so enjoyable about the atmosphere that Jesus had with his disciples that the tax collectors and the sinners, who probably had plenty of other things that they could do, enjoyed being with Jesus and his disciples. Right? And as the Pharisees looked at this, they made all kinds of accusations and concerns against Jesus. But you could commonly find Jesus gathering where people were having fun together. Right? So, uh, so again, he gets called a glutton and a drunkard, and this was not true. But Jesus spent so much time enjoying settings with people and enjoy helping those people have fun that uh, this was the perception that kind of the religious elite got about Jesus. Uh, Jesus made jokes with his disciples. Uh, so uh, Luke 9, 54 and 55 Uh, You have James and John, and they're pretty passionate. And this is what they say. It says, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, that is, these uh, people who were not doing exactly what they thought, uh, that James and John thought they should be doing. And so they go to Jesus and say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And so Jesus, first of all, he rebukes them. But then if we look at other places in the Bible and we see this attitude that James and John have, uh, Jesus makes up a nickname for James and John, and this is what he calls them. In Mark 3, 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, uh, I'm not going to try that, uh, that is sons of thunder, 
right? So the whole point of this is that Jesus is kind of poking fun at James and John because they can't control their tempers at times. And so he calls them the sons of thunder. Um, you also get this, like uh, the idea of uh, if, you have a spe- if you see a speck in your brother's eye, but you have a log protruding from your eye, and we're just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And like the people in the day, like that is a ridiculous uh, symbol. That is a ridiculous thing to think about, that I'm walking around like with a two by four hanging out of my head while I'm trying to judge your little speck on your glasses there, right? Like that's, he creates these funny images to help relate to people. Uh, the final thing is that uh, Jesus found joy with his disciples. So in, in Luke twenty two fourteen and 15, it's at the Last Supper, um, and Jesus is explaining to his disciples like what he has been longing for. This is what he says. He says, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Like you just see Jesus, his heart is to be with his disciples, to enjoy the presence with them. And right now, like for what, it, he has death looming over him. Right? But he looks forward to a meal with his friends. They enjoyed Jesus, and Jesus enjoyed them. So, so the idea that we're to draw with this is like build relationships within the family of God that you enjoy. And if you don't like a person, learn to like them. Right? Spend time with them. Figure out what is interesting about them. How has God constructed them? And learn to enjoy them. Thank God for the way that he pieced together the personality of those people. So here's what I recognize with this. Enjoyable relationships, they cannot develop without the intentionality of time allocated to those relationships. And then the second thing I realize is that over the years, for what it's worth, like this church, ABC, y'all have learned, we have learned to really enjoy each other. Like that's one of, one of the things that I've loved about coming and seeing this church is the way that this church has learned to enjoy one another. The most significant stories that I hear about the past of this church is the way that uh, you have enjoyed each other. How there used to be coffee shops up here and Pastor Don dressing up like Cher and uh, having a big party with everybody. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of ways that you have learned to enjoy each other here that we together have learned to enjoy each other. The challenge that we have to figure out is what does it look like to make space for new people in that space of enjoyment? What does it look like? If we have relationships that it, 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 we enjoy, what does it look like for each of us to have one additional space for somebody that we might bring along into that enjoyment? Uh, so second example, John and Mary. Formative relationships not only require mutual enjoyment, they require mutual care. So John 19, 26 and 27, when Jesus, Jesus is right now in this moment, he is uh, hanging on the cross and looking down at John and Mary. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that is John standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, in this moment, like Jesus is on the cross, he, he knows that Mary will not have another follower of, her, follower of his to care for her. He knows that John is going to be distraught, and so he knows that there will be struggle and suffering when he goes, and what does he do? He calls them into mutual care for each other. He says, you are family now, and you will take care of each other like family. 
And the same is true of us. If there's need, if there is burden, let me tell you, the first thing that we don't do is we don't keep that need and that burden private because we don't want to be embarrassed, right? Like We are a family. We can bring those needs to the attention of one another. But what that also means for the rest of us is that we, we don't avoid the pain or struggle of people in our family. We find ways to meet them in it. Like, because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Like We strengthen the weak among us. We provide for the needy among us. We serve one another. We take responsibility for each other because we're family. So you might think, because this is kind of the way we process church, right? Because we're an individualistic society. You might think, oh, you know what? Like, I should probably go to church today. Like, because you're like, oh, I need it. Like, I need to get my my spiritual jamba juice, right? Like I need to get my recharge. I need to get my kick in the pants. I need to get my dose of spiritual motivation, like whatever that is. And you hear the theme in there is like, I need to get, I need to get, like this is what I need to kind of take my next step in my life. And that's like inherently a consumer-based approach to church because the church is not a place that develops content for its people to consume. It's a family which means that we take responsibility for each other. Like we care for each other. We weep when there's weeping. We rejoice when there's rejoicing. We check in with each other. We spend time together. So like just a confession for what it's worth, because as we deal with the reality of the New Testament and its implications for the church, uh, and we even like did the peak assessment a few uh, months ago and worked through that, one of the things that the elders of this church realized is that like we're not actually relationally connected as we should be with the rest of our church. Right, so there was a, a spot for us to confess and repent and say we need to do better of being those who would lead the rest of the church into building relationships and understanding and caring for one another. Right, so I, I bring that to you to say like it is we are in the process of working out, uh, connecting with the church in a more intentional way as leaders because we want to have that relational investment that enables us to effectively care for one another. All right, third example, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, For, formative relationships require mutual transformation. So who was Barnabas? Let's talk about him for a second. Uh, Barnabas was, it says in Acts 11, 24 and 25, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the, the Lord. The implication is that Barnabas, as he kind of lived his life around people, that people were drawn to Jesus. And in verse 25, it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So the idea that we get is Barnabas is this guy who has been equipped, but he's particularly, for what it's worth, his original name is not Barnabas. Uh, his church renamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he had this ability to come alongside other people and to lift them up. And interestingly enough, we, know, we see that he is going to go to this place called Tarsus to look for this guy named Saul, who has recently had a conversion and recently spent time with Jesus and is starting to now preach the gospel. And so, you know, actually, like the picture that you get is Barnabas is being sent out from a church to go kind of bring uh, Paul, who, the Saul who would become Paul, up in the process of what it means to extend the gospel as an extension of a church. 
And so Barnabas is going to go up and kind of start to raise up Paul. And so, uh, so he goes and he brings Saul at the time into formal ministry. They start serving and they start traveling around together. And then this thing happens where news of a famine comes up. And their church, the church that they're at, at Antioch, they're going to take up a collection to help out with this famine that is coming. And so in Acts 11, 29 and 30, what we see is the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas raises up Saul, comes alongside him. Now Barnabas and Saul are going out and doing ministry together. And so they move from that point. They go to places where they're proclaiming the gospel together. And as you read the story, what you recognize is that a relationship shifts over time. Like Barnabas encourages and develops and pours into. And then uh, Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, he, he kind of has this subtle way of letting us know that Paul has become the leader now. He switches the order of their names. So instead of it being Barnabas and Paul, it's Paul and Barnabas. Right? So what did Barnabas do? Barnabas came alongside. He was willing to encourage and invest in somebody else. And then he was willing to step aside to let that person come in and take the lead and uh, make an investment and do something significant. So Paul was then able to grow and develop into the guy who would plant churches across the known world. So through doing mission together through having kind of the, the encouragement in their relationship, the challenge that would have existed in their relationship, the accountability necessary to fuel the growth of Paul, to enable him to become the person that Jesus was calling him to be, all of this shows us that formative relationships are meant to grow and shape us. Right, so this is, this is the most challenging part for us because this is what it requires. It requires that I'm going to be, have to be open enough to let another person into my life so that they have permission to tell me when I need to be challenged. Uh, this means that I'm going to let them have permission to call me to do hard things. Uh, it means that I'm going to let them ask questions about how I'm using my time. Uh, it means that uh, they can also provide an encouragement to me that might set me to, like, force me to set aside a part of my life that I really enjoy because of this like better thing that they're calling me to. Right? Like I think we all like enjoyment and care and those that's the kind of the first two parts, right? These uh, uh, formative relationships, you know, require enjoyment. Oh yeah, we love enjoyment. And we we really do enjoy each other here, right? We love caring for one another. And I think we we do in many ways an effective job of caring for one another. But when it comes to challenging each other and being open to being challenged by somebody else, ah Maybe we don't want to go that deep. Maybe we want to pull back a little bit. Right? For what it's worth, that is where I was in my journey. And it wasn't until I opened up space in my life and asked somebody to mentor me, asked somebody else to get coffee with me so that we could ask each other hard questions, wasn't until I met with the same small group of people weekly to listen and care for and push one another in deeper pursuit of Jesus. It wasn't until that happened that I actually was able to break past that wall and see God create the change in me that he was longing to create the whole time. That enabled my next season of growth. That is, for what it's worth, 
one of the things that will will launch us into the next season. Our ability to grow, now I'm not talking numerically, I'm talking as uh, people who are grounded in God's word, who are seeking him consistently, our ability to do that is going to be contingent on our ability to open our lives up to other people and let them challenge us, but also let them encourage us. Let, Let them call us to something deeper and something more. Okay, so what? So what? This is where we get practical. This is where we kind of go, okay, now that I've talked for a fairly long time, uh, what are we going to do with it? Uh, Number one, get in a group. If you're like, what do I do with this? How do I take a next step? Here's a possible next step that you could take. We have a Monday night men's Bible study that meets uh, here in person, but we also have an online option available for that. We have a Thursday night ladies study, which I talked about earlier today from 7 to 8.30. That is weekly. And then we also, uh, for young adults and young parents, we have a, um, something called the 530 on Sunday nights. It's a group of folks that get together and we not only find time to interact with each other and, and figure out how we're growing and taking next steps together, but we also take time to serve other people and we take time to just enjoy one another's company, right? So, uh, so those are uh, different places where you uh, might be able to step in. And if you're looking at that and you're going, you know what, nothing works for my schedule. I can't figure this out, but you know you have an open space in your schedule and you want to find somebody else to connect with you, tell somebody. Like, don't, don't just be like, oh, I guess they don't have anything, so there's not a place for me to care. Like, if you look around the room, there's not a ton of people in here, which means, like, it's hard to anticipate what everybody's schedule is going to be. So if you're like, I really want to connect, but I don't have a space to connect, if you tell somebody that, like, I will work my butt off to make sure that you have a place to connect and people to connect with, okay? So get in a group. Um, for what it's worth, those groups do not provide everything that we need relationally. But the consistency of time with the same people in a repeated manner, it creates the context where deeper relationships can form. So my growth, it did not come directly from a small group, but because I was in a small group, I was able to form a relationship with two other guys who then we met together on a bi-weekly basis and were challenging one another and encouraging one another to growth. So get in a group. Uh, Number two goodness, I wish we would believe this. Dinner is much easier than you think it is. Like, we are so, I'm speaking from my own insecurity here. We are so afraid, like, and worried about, oh, I have to have everything perfect, and uh, I've got to make an impression, or I don't, I don't really have a great relationship with that person, and so uh, dinner feels a little bit too intimate. But how are you ever going to get intimate enough to do dinner if you're never doing the thing that would lead you to become intimate with each other, right? Like, how are, that, that's the thing that develops the relationship, right? So I, our tendency is to go, oh, I don't know them well enough to have dinner yet. Like, go ahead and have dinner. Like, it's not that threat. And so what? You do something awkward, or they do something awkward, and it's like, you know, it's not like you're going to hold on to those things, right, for the rest of your life. It's a space for relationship to develop. It's a place where effort can be made. It's a place where you can learn to enjoy one another, to learn to care for one another, to learn to listen to one another. So uh, dinner is much easier than you think it is. And then the last one. You've got to take the step. So this is for everybody in the room who heard me. This is not just for the person who's missing something. It's for the person who already has something. So if you're like listening to this and you're like, oh, I've got everything I need relationally. You know what? Like it's up to you to still take a step. Create space for one more person in your sphere and invite them to something. Build a relationship with them. Uh, if you recognize as you're hearing me this morning that you need more connection, then 
Find a group. Go to a breakfast. Like, ask someone to meet with you regularly. Reach out. Say something. Talk to me. Whatever you need to do. Like, because if we keep processing church from a kind of get what I need when I think I need it approach, then we don't become Jesus people. We, we kind of persist in uh, not becoming those people, and then we miss the blessings that Jesus wants to bring to us. Because what he is actually trying to do, and this is the crazy thing, he's trying to transform us for the sake of the world. Like, he actually has this mission that he wants us to go on. He has rivers of life that he wants to pour out of our, uh, our, out of our hearts onto other people, right? But if we don't engage the processes that he gives us, we don't become the people that he longs for us to be. Like, he wants revival here in this church. But we have to take the steps to engage the rhythms. So to close, uh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to issue us a challenge. So remember, the, the New Testament writers, uh, like I said, they rarely needed to call uh, people to spend more time together, except for that one time when they needed to call people to spend more time together. Right? So, so the reality is, um, apparently, something shifted culturally among the Christians, because there was a lot of cultural upheaval at the time. Somewhere along the way, Christians got the idea ah, that it's not so important that we spend time together. It's not so important that we gather together, that I can do this faith thing on my own, that my faith doesn't require responsibility to anyone else or any particular group, that I can get what I need from my Christian faith as it is convenient for me. So Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, in recognition of this reality, he says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, hold fast the confession of your hope. He says, let us. This is about what we are doing together and we are trying to follow Jesus and stay true to Jesus and remember where our hope is pointed and remember what is uh, constantly in front of us because of the things that he has accomplished for us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For goodness, the one who gave us the promises is faithful to keep them. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? This is how you become the people that you were created to be for the sake of the world. Stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? They're, they're, like there's something about being together that is so necessary for the life that Jesus is trying to shape inside of us. Right? And it's not just about us feeling better about our faith. Like we, actually, we need each other. Like we need to worship together. We need to spend time together. We need to be able to listen to one another. We need to be able to grow in relationship together. Like, this is not just a, like, you, like, you need to make sure you do this for your own growth. It's like, no, like, if you don't show up, I don't become the person that Jesus is making me into. Right? Like, each person being invested and involved drastically impacts the growth of all of the other people because it's a living organism, the church. Right, so... So we can't love 
if we don't find ways to be together. And it's interesting that it is our love that sets us apart. Right? Like, the world doesn't know us by our moral performance. Doesn't know us by the impressiveness of our production. Doesn't know us by our biblical knowledge. The world doesn't know us by uh, our service to the poor. Though, for what it's worth, all of those things are good things. It is our love for each other that sets us apart. It is our love for each other that proclaims the truth and the actuality of what we believe. So church, let us engage in rhythms of relationship so that we might become the people that Jesus is trying to make us into. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, as I, uh, I think about uh, what it is that you're calling me into to engage in relationships, and I see even kind of the ways that I engage, I tend to remain far back. I tend to not issue the challenge at times when it probably should be issued. I tend to not build a strong enough relationship or not go deep enough with another person that it, that, that relationship might actually be able to bear the weight of some kind of challenge. So I see those tendencies in me, and I know what that means is that you actually have to change me in order to take the steps that you're trying to accomplish here in this place. Lord, my prayer is that um, as we consider this, as we consider what next steps, and this is not just with our rhythms of relationship, but all the rhythms that you're calling us to develop. As we consider what it means to develop into the kind of people that you're calling us to be, help us to understand and see with clarity the next step that we are to take. Lord, the next step that would make us more into that person, the next rhythm that we need to implement, whatever is going to send us into that next stage of growth that we might actually begin to see your power and your presence move in significant ways in this place and in our spheres of influence. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would pour yourself out on these people, on all of us, that we might see what it is that you want us to do to become the people you're making us into. And these things I ask in Jesus' mighty name.